43. Verses 33 through to 43. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And especially those two verses, 42 and 43. Well, friends, our mandate for being here this weekend are the words do this in remembrance of me. That's God willing what we hope to do tomorrow morning, to do this in remembrance of him. But as we prepare to do so, we're going to ask, it might seem like a very straightforward question with a very straightforward answer, but nonetheless, it's an important one for us to ask. Why? Why are we doing this in remembrance of him. In the passage that we have before us this evening, we have a stark reminder, a stark reminder of exactly why it is we are doing what we are doing. And you know, friends, on this, the eve of the Lord's Supper, it's good, is it not, and helpful for us to be reminded. The reality is we forget, we forget what we are as the Lord's people, as we are no doubt saturated in the ordinary every day. And so that's why tonight, and Lord willing, tomorrow, we're going to take a journey. And we're going to take a journey to a place that we can, we can never find ourselves too often at. Where are we going? Well, we're going to the cross. We're going to Calvary. And as we come to Calvary, what we have here is a narrative in this chapter that, that assures us and reminds us of the miraculous power of the grace of God in dealing with sinners just like you and just like me. A, a power that we see in action through the interaction that we have before us here, a, an interaction that I'd like us to think about under three simple headings. Rebellion, repentance, and reward. So friends, here we are on Calvary's hill, and what do we see? 
Well, we see three crosses. We see two uh, sinners. We see one saviour, all being put to death. Two of them, we know, are, are worthy of such a punishment. Yet one of them is innocent. Who are these two sinners, these two rebels? Well, we, we don't know their names, but what we do know are their crimes. They were thieves. They were robbers. Now, we might think that this is a, a harsh uh, judgment on those who are nothing more than petty thieves, but, but they were more than this. These men were on the level of Barabbas, because as well as being thieves and robbers, which they were, they were also those who would go on to uh, cause great damage to the lives of those from whom they took, often murdering them in horrendous Ways. These were men that were worthy of the cross. However, as we come alongside these men, we see that the prospect of death itself, it doesn't seem to subdue the rebellion, which is, of course, our first point. Because as, as these two men fight for their lives, what we see is a window into their hearts in verse 39. One of the criminals who had hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Here we have this man railing at Jesus, bitterly and sarcastically accusing him. Are you not the Christ? Well, if you are, save us. Save yourself. Even as these men are in their final moments in life, in their rebellion, in their hatred for the Lord, they are using what little energy, what little strength they have to push back. And they're both at it. It's not just one of the men, as we might be led to believe in this chapter, because if we look at Matthew's account in, in chapter 27, verse 44, we read that the robbers, plural, who were crucified him, also reviled him in the same way. So that as these men are fighting for their, their lives, both of them, they're essentially, effectively crying out in their hearts, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now this isn't the kind of deathbed experience any of us would aspire after. It's sadly, sadly it's not an uncommon one. And even this evening hour, there are those taking their final breaths here in time, and in their heart they're crying out, we will not have this man to reign over us. Does that not cause us to have a sense of urgency in the gospel? They need to hear the news. They need to know what it is to have that that new and living way opened up to them so that they too can be partakers of the grace of God. And that's what we see here, because although this scene is ugly, and it is an ugly scene to behold, one thing in this whole scene that is far from ugly is the Saviour. Sure, Jesus is physically marred and scarred as he he displays the marks of of mankind's brutality upon his body. As, As you would look at him, he is ugly in that sense. But as Jesus hangs upon the cross, 
what we see in this interaction before us here with the lowest of the low is unmeasured beauty. A beauty that shows forth the fact that even for these mocking criminals, where there is life, there is hope. That's what we see here. Yes, there's mocking and blaspheming by these two men as they fight for their lives too, but still, as the reality of the situation unfolds before them, for one of these men at least, not only does the, the reality of the situation dawn on him, but so too, and this is wonderful, so too does the reality of the Savior. And that's why it's good for us tonight, friends, to come to a passage such as this. Because what unfolds before our very eyes here is a, a picture of the reality of the matchless mercy of God, the greatness of his grace. And don't we need to be reminded of that as we find ourselves as tired and weary pilgrims sojourning through this scene of time? A, a greatness that, that can be seen here as very quickly the dynamic of Calvary changes. Two sinners and a saviour all of a sudden becomes a, a sinner, a seeking sinner, and a saviour, which brings us to our second point. Because although we see rebellion, we also see repentance. We see change. Of course, that's what repentance is, is it not? It's a, a change of heart. Because for one of these criminals, and we see this in verse 40, something changes. Just look at the language he uses. But the other rebuked him. This is him rebuking the other criminal. But the other rebuked him, saying... Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. What's happening here? This is, this is interesting. Two things. Because in a complete change of direction, that's what repentance is, is a complete turning away from our sin to Christ. In a complete change of direction, this ruthless rebel, he firstly acknowledges who Jesus is as well as who he himself is. Now, at this point, we could be skeptical and we could say, well, of course, there's a change of direction. This, this man is dying. He's running out of options. But this isn't remorse, and there's a, a world, there's an eternity of difference between remorse and repentance. Because remorse and remorseful people rather, they, they do all that they can to prevent themselves being found out. They deny, they deflect, they do all that they can just to cover their own sin. Yet those who truly repent, what do they do? They own their sin. We saw that with the psalmist in Psalm 51 as we sung the words. Against you, you only, he cries out, have I sinned in your sight done this ill. David knew he had sinned. He owned his sin. He acknowledged his sin. And that's what true repentance is. Do you not fear God, he says, since you are under 
the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see, the unrepentant heart, friend, it doesn't view sin in these terms. And this is made so clear, is it not, in the actions of the other criminal, in the actions of the crowd, those who are deflecting their own unrighteousness by ridiculing Christ's righteousness. But not this other criminal. Not now. This is encouraging. Because in a very short time, he's come such a long way. That, my friends, is the power of the gospel. And we need reminded of the power of the gospel, do we not? I love that word uh, in the original for the Holy Spirit. It's a really telling word, pneuma. And we get the word pneumatic drill from that, pneuma. So that the Holy Spirit is the pneuma. And what a vivid picture. What do pneumatic drills do? They break through hard stone. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit breaks through the hardness of hearts, the hardness of your heart, the hardness of my heart. That's the power of the gospel. A power that's not only has this man changing direction completely in, in how he views himself and God, but a power that also compels this man to publicly confess this reality. He's not ashamed of the Lord at this point. Yes, his partner in crime is hanging on the other side, as it were. Yes, the crowd are there hearing him, but he's not ashamed. It's not a time to hide his lamp under a lampstand. This is a time to own who he is and to own who the Lord is. And speaking these words... You know that there are those who are listening. But as well as confessing and professing publicly, more than that, we see that this repentant rebel, he's, he's seeking relationship. Verse 42, what do we read there? And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, I don't want this to be my only encounter with you. I want to be with you. I, I want to, you to remember me for all eternity. I cannot bear the thought of being separate from you. And isn't that the desire of every Christian? It's true that we know we, and we're so aware of that, no doubt, tonight. We know that we don't walk with the Lord as, as we'd like to. That's true. We know that we're not what we would like to, to be. We don't deny that. But yet, when all is stripped away, if we're truly his tonight, no matter how much we falter and fail, the reality is we couldn't live without him. We could not live without him. Why? Because we are in a relationship with him. 
Why? Because we know him personally and intimately. We love him because he has first loved us. And so it is with this man. He says, I see uh, myself for who I am, a sinner. And I see you for who you are, a saviour. My saviour, my Lord, my God. And I want to be with you always. How does Jesus respond Again, a window into who our Lord is. If it was you or I, we might be inclined by nature, if we're being honest, to say, well, I'm sorry, you've had your chance. You've blown it. It's too late. Now is not the time to be saying sorry. You're going to, read, you're going to receive the just rewards of your action. And, you know, let's be honest. A sad reality of, of who we are as the church is that at times we're so quick to condemn non-Christians, aren't we? We're so quick to condemn, to tut-tut at the actions of those who have not been saved by grace, all the while forgetting the matchless mercy that has been lavished on us who are just as undeserving. And you know, sometimes our lack of love for the lost, and I'm just saying this generally, not to you as a congregation, but generally as, as the church, our lack of love for the lost, it, it shows that our eyes have strayed from Calvary. I heard someone saying that the best way to reach, to, to reach people in our communities, the best way to reach people is through conversation rather than confrontation. And that's what's happening here. Because when this repentant rebel makes this request, and this brings us uh, finally to uh, our, our final point, instead of showing this man resistance, what we see is that Jesus instead offers reward. Because in making such a bold request by faith, regardless of this man's past, and he has a past and a present, we get another window into the mercy, the love, and the kindness of our suffering Savior. Verse 43, and he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And the word truly here, it's it's. An emphasis. It doesn't, he doesn't just say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Truly, you will be with me in paradise. I know it's hard to believe, he's saying. But where I am going, you are going. There is no doubt. I will give you the desire of your heart. That is the very reason that I am hanging on this tree to die for a sinner just like you. And today, we're going to be in paradise together never to part again. Isn't that something? Paradise is, of course, heaven. It's a word that's used in, in some places. The same word that's used for the Garden of Eden. That's interesting. It's a Persian word that referred to a walled garden, a garden that, that Persian kings would invite a companion into and walk with him in it. That's what this paradise is. It's a place of inexpressible beauty 
and peace. Yes, where the lion and the lamb lay down together, that is true. But a place of companionship where we will walk with the Lord Jesus, with King Jesus himself. And you know, as an aside, it's just very much an aside. It's interesting that in, in Genesis 2.9, we read, just thinking about the theme of, of um, paradise and Eden, uh, using the same word. In Genesis 2.9, we read a description of the Garden of Eden. In verse 9, we read, Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's Eden. And then in Revelation 22, we see, we see John's vision of heaven, of, of the new Jerusalem. And we read there, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Both Eden and heaven have this tree of life. In Eden, it represents the, the eternal life that awaited Adam and his seed if Adam was to be obedient but sadly he wasn't. In heaven, it surely represents the, the eternal life that belongs to every child of God because of the obedience of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as well as this, we, we see that uh, there's a river in Genesis, and a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. And in Revelation we read, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Is the new heaven, here's a question for you, is the new heaven, is this paradise, Eden regained and restored? We don't know. But it's good for us to think about heaven. We don't think about heaven enough. We don't think about this, this paradise nearly as much as we ought to. This, this place that's going to be the home of each and every believer. The American preacher Jonathan Edwards, he made the observation that Christians live like distracted travelers who stay at a hotel on their way to a destination but never move on to the place that they're heading. In other words... We don't really think about heaven. We're very earthbound. That, that place where there is sinless union and communion with God and one another, a, a place like unlike Eden, sin can never enter again. And that's a true paradise, is it not? As we think about our sin this evening, as we're laden by our, the wickedness of our own hearts, we struggle, don't we? This isn't, this isn't our eternal experience. And we praise God for that, for that paradise, that paradise that this common criminal is just about to inherit. Because he's worthy? Certainly not. He couldn't be less worthy. But rather because as he comes to the end of his life, he puts his trust in the one who is worthy. That is the gospel. I don't know if it's so much uh, prevalent in your culture here, but certainly in Ireland culture, where I'm from, 
There are many people who don't come to the Lord's table because they say, I'm not good enough. And we say, of course you're not good enough. That's the point. But he's good enough. I don't know you. I know some of you. I don't know. There's many of you I don't know. I don't know where you stand before the Lord. But if you're here tonight and you love the Lord, and yet you haven't professed because you're not good enough, you're never going to be good enough. Your place is to come and profess his name publicly, just like this criminal did on his deathbed. To not be ashamed of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. For every look to self, take ten to him. And so, yes, we examine ourselves tonight. That is true. But the Lord is saying something to us, is he not? He's saying you're not what you want to be, but neither are you what you once were. Because the same grace that's touched this criminal has touched you. And because of this, I will remember you as well. Your sins, they are many, but my mercy, he says, is more. But until I remember you and take you home to paradise, he's saying, I want you to remember me, to come, to come to my table and to do this in remembrance of me as a, as a foretaste, just a foretaste of what's to come, united together as a family of believers. I don't know many of you, but isn't it wonderful that we're united in the blood of Jesus Christ? We are all one in him, and the Lord delights to see us there together. And if you are sitting behind, if you're on the fringes, if you're on the periphery, and yet he has died for you, why not come, take your place, and be numbered amongst those who profess Jesus as King and as Saviour. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We praise you that as we reflect within our own hearts and without in the world around us, that for those for whom you have died, this is not our lot or our inheritance, that for all of us the best is yet to come. But until then, we pray that by your grace that we would make the best of now, that we would seek to serve you and to worship you and to give our all to the one who died and gave himself for us. Be with any struggling here this evening, any who are perhaps even backslidden in their hearts, that you would draw them back to yourself, your own tender, loving way, that you would bring them to that place where once more they would behold the beauty of the King and what beauty is to be found in you. Be with us now in our final item of praise. We thank you for our brother who leads us and the gifts that you've given. We pray that all that we do would ultimately be to the glory of your name. And all we ask is in this name alone. Amen.